Hello and welcome to Fueling the Transition, the podcast series from A-Free Management Consulting. My name is Matt Brown. I'm Vice President in the Management Consulting Division at A-Free. I've been working on the energy transition for nearly 30 years. In this series, we talk to people who are working really at the cutting edge of the energy transition, and we deal with the themes of decarbonisation, decentralisation, and digitalisation. In this episode, we were hampered a little bit by COVID situation, so unfortunately, the sound quality is not quite as good as usual. Apologies for that. So I'm very pleased today to be saying that we've got Tony Green from National Grid Gas joining us to talk about hydrogen. And Tony is director, the hydrogen director at National Grid Gas. Hi, Tony. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. Nice to see you. And as ever on these hydrogen ones, we've got John Williams joining us as well, who looks after our hydrogen expertise cluster. Hi, John. Hello again, Matt. Hi, Tony. So many thanks for joining us, Tony. I start off just by asking if you could explain your role a little bit at National Grid Gas. Yeah, so as you said in the introduction, I'm the Director of Hydrogen. Uh, I've been in that role now for almost a couple of years, but actually been focusing on hydrogen for the, the two prior years to that. I joined National Grid four years ago now as Head of Engineering and Asset Management, actually. And that was uh, with responsibility for the gas transmission network. And I did this actually after 25 years in uh, consultancy. So uh, an area near and dear to your hearts uh, on, on the line. I jumped ship and came across. And one of my opening questions really was, where's your 25-year plan? And interestingly, in the gas sector, they don't really have that 25-year plan that we may see in other sectors, like the water sector, for example. And uh, it's just a difference in the way the the industries are regulated and the way they're managed. And my next question was, where are all your hydrogen projects? Because I'd been working on various hydrogen projects, looking at uh, distribution and so on um, when I was in consultancy. And there really wasn't much going on in the uh, transmission sector. So my opening question there was, you know, can we actually put hydrogen into the transmission asset? And nobody really knew the answer. So... um, that, uh, that stimulated the last four years' work, basically. And what started off as a question became a full-time role two years ago, and now I have a, a full-time team all uh, working on hydrogen and a whole raft of projects, which I'm sure we can get into a bit later on. So, yeah, it's been quite a journey over the last four years to, to build that whole hydrogen agenda. I guess I know the answer to the question, but I'll just check that the answer to the question, can you put hydrogen in the uh, transmission asset, is yes. Yeah, we're, we're pretty confident we can and others have already done it. We've still got to prove it here on GB soil, but we've got increasing levels of confidence that it is doable. And even the what I would have regarded as the riskier areas, I've been working on potential mitigations to that. Um, and I've, I've discovered another one in the last few weeks, so I can share that with you a bit later on because it's, it's an area of interest. Have you always been in the energy sector or have you been working in other sectors as well? I would actually regard myself as probably a bit more of a water engineer historically. So I started life as a civil engineer. I worked in network modelling for many, many years, and uh, that, that led me through the water sector and into the gas sector. I then specialised in water consulting, then picked up gas consulting, and then did a bit of infrastructure consulting as well. So I, I would say I'm a... First and foremost, a civil engineer that I'm then chartered in water and then I'm chartered in gas. So I've done a 
a bit of bit of both. And these days, I've probably spent about 50-50% of my time across the two sectors. Okay. And then in terms of what sort of led you through your career, what your motivations are, I don't know if you could just talk a little bit about that. Probably my motivation is to be innovative. I like looking at the areas that are difficult or problematic or I, where I see or sense an opportunity. Um, so that what, that's what really drives me. If somebody says something can't be done, that's probably the, the, the thing I like the most because it gives me something to really chew at and, uh, and go after. But it's, it's identifying those innovative solutions and seeing them through to delivery is what really excites me. Um, so I've, I've, you know, I've done that in the water sector, looking at a whole raft of different areas through optimization and simulation, right the way through to leakage uh, analysis and so on, and some of the latest asset management techniques. And then I'm, I'm now obviously doing the same thing on the gas side of the, the sector, looking at some of the cutting edge stuff in, uh, in hydrogen. So I'd say it's innovation has probably been my, my main motivator. That's the key thread through everything I do. Do you get bored easily? I, I wouldn't say I get bored easily because I've generally got a whole pile of stuff in front of me that I want to explore. So, um, you know, if I if I get bored with one thing, there's usually something else to pick up and, and move on to the next one. So, no, I wouldn't say I get bored that easily. <laughs> and in terms of, you know, wider role, National Grid's role across the power and the gas side, then what's important, would you say, in um, in in the role in decarbonisation, is there any tension between the power and gas roles of National Grid? I wouldn't say tension. I, I think if you, obviously people will represent their, their, I'll call it their silo, you know, where they are, are based and more passionate about. But um, those people that actually look at what's needed to get to net zero, you, you need electrification and you need a form of storage in terms of molecules. And the, the two actually go hand in hand quite well. Um, You'll still get what I call in the sector stone throwing, you know, from one side to the other, people being sort of pro one or pro the other. I sit in the middle in the sense of, you know, I think we need all of the above to get to net zero. If you try and go too far one way or too far the other, the, the cost curve gets uh, quite aggressive. And actually, if you find that nexus point in the middle between uh, gas and electric, that's probably the, uh, the, the best solution point. So... Yeah, there's probably a little bit of tension, and you see that in policy making, you see it in regulation, you see it in all areas. But uh, I, I think once you really look at it, it's probably a, a win-win for both both scenarios. And then just on some of the projects, hydrogen projects that National Grid are involved in, I don't know if you could just tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, well, there's probably two major ones that are worth highlighting. The first one is an extension of can I put hydrogen into the natural gas transmission network and that project is called Future Grid. And after four years of doing desktop work, last year we submitted to the Networks Innovation Competition, which is run by Ofgem, our regulator, to build Future Grid. And what we're doing with Future Grid is decommissioning some of our assets around the UK that we plan to decommission early now in Rio 2. And then we're going to rebuild them as a test facility. So we're decommissioning a, um, a whole entry point, a whole exit point, line pipe, block valves, slam shuts, control and instrumentation kiosks, everything. And we're bringing it all into a site at Spade Adam in Cumbria. Uh, Spade Adam is an RAF base. And in the middle of that, DNV have got a 
a, a range where they are building a hydrogen infrastructure and we're going to build on the end of that a transmission network that then links to the distribution network which then links to the hydrogen houses so on one site you'll have beach to meter with future grid at the top end running first of all two percent hydrogen then 20 percent hydrogen then all the way up to 100 percent hydrogen so it's a it's a big endeavor there's not a site anywhere like it in the world. And I was on the GERGE 60th anniversary conference just last week. And we, we, we heard from hydrogen projects all the way around the world. And there's nobody building anything at this scale to really demonstrate that the existing gas network that they've got can take hydrogen all the way to that level. So over the next couple of years, we're going to complete the building of that and then the testing of that. So in 2023, I would hope to be in a position that uh, I've got all of the, the boxes ticked on can the assets that we've got today carry hydrogen safely. So that's that project is proving it can be done. The other big project that I've got underway at the moment is what we're calling Project Union. And Project Union is about developing the hydrogen backbone for the UK. So on the basis, we've got 7,500 kilometres of high-pressure gas main today. How do we choose which assets to repurpose in order to create that first backbone that starts off that, the, the, the larger transition? And the way we've designed it is to join together the industrial clusters. If you join the, the industrial clusters together with the major production points that are currently forecast, you end up with about a 2,000 kilometer network. So it's gone through the, the initial strategy feasibility phase at the moment, and we're now in a transition phase where we are working up what needs to be done before we get to a pre-feed. And there, there are some big meaty questions, um, particularly how do you maintain resilience in the natural gas network while you are unpicking certain pipelines to convert them to hydrogen? And how do you go through that replumbing process to take an asset down out of natural gas and bring it back up into a hydrogen world. So we're working through what does that actually look like? How do we do it? How do we actually build the business case around it? And then how do we take that to our regulator to achieve the next round of funding? So Project Union um, will start most likely up in the north because the two northern clusters, those, that being High Net on Merseyside and East Coast Cluster, um, have got the, the, the um, phase one funding and the ACORN cluster in Scotland is the reserve cluster. So Project Union will start in the north and then work its way south based on the, uh, on the current funding. So those, those are the two big ones. We've then got a portfolio of another 30 or so innovation projects that sit behind all of this. And, and the second one you mentioned, so the idea there is to, is to use existing pipes but repurpose you know, the existing pipe so that you can connect up the different sort of hubs. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And um, some people will probably be thinking, why on earth don't you just build a new pipe? But a new pipe is around five times the cost of repurposing. And although our pipelines may have been in service for 30, 40, even 50 years in some cases, the projected asset life of those going forwards is tens of years into the future. So there's lots of asset life left in that infrastructure. So we don't want to waste that because you and I as consumers are paying for that already. So if we can convert the asset that we've got, it's a huge saving on that new build cost. 
Now, we will have to do some new build. Um, at the moment, you're probably looking at about 70% repurpose, 30% um, new build. That may creep up to 80% repurpose, 20% new build as we get further into it. But you're looking at those sorts of ratios, we think. And that's not just based on our assessment. That's um, very, very similar to the European hydrogen backbone data that 23 TSOs across Europe have also developed. So that, that's the, the average works out at about 70, 30 across Europe. So we think we're in the similar sort of range from our perspective. And, and what determines, Tony, whether you can repurpose the pipe or whether you need a new one? Is it the location or is it the age, the condition of the pipe? I think at the moment, if we've got a pipe in the area, that we would be able to repurpose it. Now, the, the, the degree of retrofit will probably come down to the condition of the valves on the route rather than the pipeline itself. But what will drive new build is if we, can, if we can't maintain resilience on the natural gas network, we will probably have to do new build to create that headspace, that headroom that you need in order to, to have that resilience. Because what we can't do is, is dip resilience on the natural gas network as we move across to a hydrogen network. We've got to, we've got to balance the two. And that's, that's going to be quite a challenge. And we, we are going to need that new build to just unlock some of the options as we go. So starting in the north, it's probably a bit easier because we've got more parallel lines running north-south. As you come down towards the south, it becomes a bit more challenging because you don't have that whether it be a parallel pipe or a looped pipe, to be able to split one off for hydrogen service and keep the other on at natural gas service, for example. So other countries have got it easier. Um, in other countries like the Netherlands, they've got a high gas network and a low gas network from a quality point of view, and they can split one off to be hydrogen and the other to be natural gas. We, we don't have those networks on that basis, so we've got to, we've got to work a little harder to unpick. And, and presumably then all the repurposed pipes, and the, these are all plastic pipes rather than steel pipes, are they? All of the National Transmission Network is steel pipe. What about the, the embrittlement issue that we, we hear about? You know, you put hydrogen down a steel pipe and it gets brittle and could crack, which we don't want. Yeah, so hydrogen embrittlement is an interesting aspect to talk about because if you talk to chemical engineers out there, the, the first thing they'll say is hydrogen embrittlement will occur. Um, if you go and talk to the world's largest hydrogen transmission network in the world, which is on the Gulf Coast in the States, they'll tell you they don't see any hydrogen embrittlement on their asset. Now, it's not a case that they don't see any, but they see very, very, very little occurring. You start to explore what are the reasons behind this, and it largely comes down to the type of hydrogen you're carrying and the conditions you're carrying it in as to whether your pipeline is exposed. What I think it comes back to, a lot of chemical engineers are used to work in chemical processing plant. It's probably wetter gas. You've got um, hydrogen in the ionic form. It's more unstable. It gets into the metal lattice framework, and it starts to cause you more issues. If you're running a transmission network on nice, clean, dry gas that's in the molecular form, it's much more stable. And you don't really see the issue. So those, that, you know, those are the fundamentals for me. So if you can work on the basis that you can mitigate by those controls, you're part way forward. Now, does that mean I'm not concerned about embrittlement? 
the answer is no. I am still concerned about embrittlement because if you if you don't focus on these things, it will come back and bite you. So then you've got to look at what other forms of mitigation can you use to prevent against embrittlement. And there's some really simple ones. For example, pressure cycling on the pipes. Pressure cycling is where we boost the pressure overnight in order to get more gas into the network and you release it during the day. Now, we do that today in the form of line pack, but actually we don't cycle our pipes very much at all here in the UK. So we've got a lot of life left in the asset because we're not cycling. But if you can manage and flatten that pressure in a hydrogen world, you cause less issues. Other companies have looked at oxygen dosing. So if you put around 500 parts per million of oxygen into the supply, it will mitigate against embrittlement. And then uh, the latest things that I'm looking at is actually if you've still got a risk and the risks are higher on the higher tensile steels, can you actually reline the pipe? And this is where my experience from the water sector comes in because we've been relining pipe in the water sector for donkey's years. And you could go down a polyethylene type liner, but what I'm really interested in are some of the epoxy liners that are impregnated that will actually prevent um, the reaction on the surface. So I'm, I'm tracking a number of compounds that are under test at the moment. Um, but the latest development that we're beginning to look at is can we actually utilize graphene as the reliner? So that, that's quite an exciting opportunity because if you can um, actually reline the graphene, graphene is impermeable to hydrogen. Ironically, you actually could use the natural gas to produce the graphene in the first place. So I, I love that circular economy argument of that. Um, but if you can actually utilize graphene, you could actually put an electric charge down that layer and it becomes a smart pipe. So the one thing you want to prevent against is cracking and you could potentially use the graphene to monitor are you seeing uh, any cracks occurring in the pipe? So that's my, my latest project we've just awarded in the last few weeks, and we're looking forward to seeing if that will actually work for us. So, and so just an example of where, you know, people have said this can't be done. You go out, you find um, potential solutions, and there's still some challenges along the way, and the higher tensile steels have been that challenge. And just in the last few weeks, spotted that in uh, September, and we've let the project um, in November to, to start exploring that. So we move at pace. If we see an opportunity, we go after it. And we are leading the way in that space um, across any other T TSOs across Europe right now. I have to ask, uh, you know, the, the stupid question, is what else can a smart pipe do? Anything? Uh, is it just the monitoring? Essentially, a smart pipe just allows you to, to interact with it and you monitor it. Now, I'm, I'm not a scientist and I'm not into all the things it can do. I just ask the questions and I, I get the, uh, the academics to... Uh, tell me what it can do. And when I ask the question, could you put a charge down it and tell me if, if there's an issue in the pipe? The, the response was, yes, we think we can. I'm, I'm ready for them to prove it to me now, which would be fantastic. Yeah, that would be, that would be amazing if you could be monitoring live, I suppose. Well, what about the other, the other parts of the, the network? You, know, you, you mentioned some of the valves. In terms of the, you know, the, the the properties of hydrogen, how it differs from natural gas, you know, we hear about the it being a lower energy density, so you've got to push it through the pipes at a faster velocity to get the same energy out the other end. Are there any of those aspects that cause 
particular challenges when converting to hydrogens, sort of thinking about when you move over to 100% rather than a 20% blend? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. The, the lower calorific value means we need to shift approximately three times the quantity to get the same energy. Um, and that's just down to the energy density uh, of the gas. Velocities is the one thing that we have got to keep an eye on because high velocity in the gas could pick up dust in the pipe. Is it going to cause us um, additional issues? That's one thing. Probably the main one, though, is compression. And our compressors today could probably cope with, I'll say, 5%, 10%. Some people are quoting they could even go up to 20 or even 30% with a level of of retrofit um, that remains to be seen and we haven't tested that on our assets at this point but once you go above a, a decent level of blend you've got to look at different forms of compression so the compressor fleet we've got today will need to be replaced in some form the us system that i referenced earlier um, is is actually working on reciprocating compressors so relatively high lift but you, you, you've got relatively small displacement our network is um, delivered today mainly using centrifugal compressors. So we're looking at big volumes to move. Um, we've got to explore what type of compression do we need for the national network going forward. And I think it could be a combination. I don't think we will end up having to shift large quantities of gas from the tip of Scotland to the tip of Cornwall in a hydrogen world, which is the way the network is designed today. And the, the reason I say that is we'll probably have more distributed hydrogen generation than we see today. So you've got five or six locations where natural gas comes into the UK network today. Wherever you've got electricity and water, you can generate hydrogen. So th this is where it changes the, the almost the role of it. And I, I've, I've used the term a few times now it almost stops being a transmission network and almost becomes more of a balancing tank um, in the sense of you're, you're taking on hydrogen where it's needed, where it's um, in surplus, and you're delivering it where it's needed. And that could be in a similar locality rather than large-scale production at one point and having to push it right to the extremities of the network at the other side. That will, that will evolve, and we, we still don't know where all of the production is going to be, of course. And this is one of the big challenges. How do you design against something where you don't know where everything's going to be? So um, we're, we're exploring the options at the moment on, on compression in particular to see how ready can we be. And what we're trying to do is work out what are the no-regrets decisions you can make today and work towards what, what will be the result in the future. And the, the types of compressors that you might need then in the future, are, are they existing technology or are they going to need to be new developments in compressor? You, you can go and buy both reciprocating and centrifugal compressors that can um, run on hydrogen and uh, move hydrogen today. Um, probably in some cases, maybe not the, the sheer size that we would go to. One of the challenges with centrifugal compressors is when it's running on hydrogen, you need a lot of um, speed in the compressor to get the compression you need. And that's down to the density of the gas. When you've got a wheel moving that fast, it creates a lot of heat. So you've got to be able to get the heat away. So a smaller unit is easier to get the heat away than a very large unit that we would use today. So those are some of the challenges we've got to explore. That's what the OEMs are looking at um, from, from the unit. So there may be opportunity for more development in the future in that space. 
um, as, as the needs of the sector are, are really identified. But it could be done today with smaller units and more of them. So from that point of view, I think there's a, there's a solution already there, but there's room for, for more in the future. Okay, fascinating. Coming back to something you mentioned about the transmission system being a, a balancing tank and about distributed production of hydrogen. So, so you, you could then, wherever you've got a, say, a decent renewable resource, so, you know, the solar farm maybe down in the southwest or southeast, offshore wind, maybe again up in Scotland, so there's a requirement to bring some um, south. How easy would it be for those smaller hydrogen production facilities to inject either into the distribution network or into the transmission network? Do you, do you see a role for those smaller scale production being able to feed in? Yeah, I do. And I, I, I mean, it's very akin to the biogas facilities that you see today. And um, we see biogas coming onto the distribution networks. And we've also got biogas coming onto the transmission network today. So there's no reason why that same philosophy doesn't work for, for hydrogen, whether it be small scale or large scale. We've had um, a number of potential developers contact us with schemes asking how much hydrogen we can take at what points. We are working up a, a blending roadmap, um, which starts to identify how much hydrogen we can take and where and by when. So we start to put a framework around these things for, for folks. Chances are the distribution networks will be ready before us and government have given them the target of 2023. Bear in mind the distribution networks have got a largely plastic network. They're working on slightly different challenges than we are, but on the plus side for ourselves, we carry a huge amount of gas um, in our network. It's pretty cold today. I haven't actually looked at the data, but we're probably moving something around 300 million cubic metres of gas today um, in the UK network. If you've got a hydrogen production facility, you've got to go a very, very long way to get to a decent percentage of gas flowing down one of our feeders. Um, we, we've had a number of... Um, schemes that, um, ask us how much hydrogen can you take and they've, they've told us how much they might produce and in, in one situation it was actually below the rounding of our modeling tools um, when we when we analyzed the the amount of gas flow that went past that facility so that, that's just a, a you know a, a, an illustration um, it was a small project there will be much bigger projects but just an example that you, you do need a lot of hydrogen before it starts becoming an appreciable blend on the, the national transmission network. Do, do you think it would fit better then to have, you know, big scale, you know, with the existing infrastructure we've got, big scale CCS projects producing hydrogen from the natural gas feeding in, you know, would that, would, would that be a better fit? I think we need both. So the way I describe this is we need deep decarbonisation of industry as fast as we can if we want to get to net zero. The best way of doing that is blue hydrogen production from steam methane reformation around your industrial clusters. So those industrial clusters are largely on the coasts already. You've got natural gas for those locations. You can reform the gas and get the decarbonisation there. Spin-off from that is you can start decarbonising then between those clusters, utilising the backbone that I mentioned. But I often describe blue hydrogen as a transitional technology. It's good. It delivers about a 95% capture rate if you're using particularly the, um, 
the, the water reformation um, methodologies. But um, if you go to green hydrogen, you've got 100% green hydrogen at that point. So no, all the carbon's captured. You know, you're not producing any carbon at that point. So for me, green has got to be the future. Now, the challenge at the moment is, yes, we've got a gigafactory in the UK. We've got a second one coming. You know, those need to be running at full pelt for many years until we start having, making any dent on the, the amount of gas that we actually need going forward. So I think we need all the green production that we can get our hands on and keep that pushing forward. We also need blue. If green can absolutely scale quicker, you know, blue may have a, a slightly shorter shelf life. Now, you know, I think blue will probably be around for at least 50 years um, into the future. We've got hundreds of years of gas left on the planet. You know, why won't we utilize that, especially if we can get that capture rate up from 95, even higher, um, with more innovation? You know, these things will keep innovating. The, the other area that I think is particularly interesting is the um, pyrolysis, the so-called turquoise hydrogen. I think that is potentially the dark horse of all of the, uh, the colours that are out there at the moment, and that could come racing through as a, another um, potential winner if they can get to scale. They're very much bench scale at the moment. They're in the labs, getting out of the lab, but we need... We need to go a very, very long way before that's producing more. So, you know, I would start backing the three horses almost if we could. Yeah, we've had a few conversations lately, you know, with with with, uh, with people around almost a desire to exit fossil fuels. That fossil fuels are the bad actor in climate change, and that as a result, you have to go green hydrogen because otherwise, you're just giving fossil fuel companies, oil and gas companies, uh, an option for continuing. It's not, it's not how I see the world because, as you say, if you, if you have a resource and you can make use of it and take the carbon out, then, then why wouldn't you? Well, why would you not carry on? But I think there is still quite a, there's a, um, a sense out there of, 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 of people being quite anti the continuation of fossil fuel in, in and of itself. Yeah, and I, you know, if you could go straight to green and achieve it in the timescales, then go for it. But I don't see that ramp up. You know, UK government have said we want five gigawatts of hydrogen production by 2030. That needs to be many, many times bigger if we're going to deliver everything by 2050 using green hydrogen. So the dual track approach allows us to deliver volume. We're not putting all of our eggs in one basket. It does allow us potentially to become a net exporter and utilize that expertise that we've got in the industry, both in the, the offshore oil and gas. So yes, it does reutilize that, um, that infrastructure, but it also allows the, um, the offshore oil and gas operators to contribute to net zero. Otherwise, what they're going to do is decommission everything. And that's an additional cost to us as well. At least this way, we are utilising that infrastructure going forward to store carbon and, and play a role. And bear in mind, some of those big oil and gas operators are the ones who are financing the green hydrogen production. So, you know, there's, there's a crossover there and cross-fertilisation. I would say they clearly want to get to green as well. 
but blue is a is a gateway is probably the terminology I would use. We're all, you know, it's a little bit like driving the hybrid cars we drive today. I know my hybrid car that is right next to me right now is is not the end state. You know, this is a car I will have for a period of time before I have, probably have an electric car or I have a hydrogen car. At the moment, it's running on two fuels because that's that's the best technology that's available at the time when I bought that particular vehicle. So, you know, transitional is okay, I think, as long as we know what the end game is. You, you mentioned pyrolysis um, just now, and, and the, the last uh, podcast, we, we talked about pyrolysis a, a little bit on the back of the announcement that Centrica made last week about their investment into High Rock. We've done quite a bit of work on pyrolysis, looking at the, the, you know, the costs, the benefits. We certainly think it's a very promising technology if it can be, if it can be scaled up. You probably see lots of other new technologies coming along. Are there any of those that you think are really exciting that you can talk about? Well, the, I mean, the, the project that I've, I, I spoke about a few minutes ago, which was the graphene one, that is a pyrolysis technique. They're, they're actually using microwave technology to get the, uh, to, to crack the methane and produce the, uh, the graphene on the back end. And interestingly, they see hydrogen as the byproduct. So, you know, <laughs> The graphene is what they're really get, wanting to get their hands on. Hydrogen being a byproduct, you know, that's a spin-off. You've got two products that are actually worth something. So that's that's probably the most exciting one that I've come across in, in recent times. Um, I'm constantly on the lookout for, for others. We've got an area of work, particularly we talked earlier about blending. I'm very interested in de-blending as well. And how do we use membrane technology in order to de-blend aid the transition so if we've got a, a, a blend of hydrogen running down through the network how can i either stop hydrogen going any further or how can i just take hydrogen from that point on those are the two things i would like to be able to do i'd like to be able to do it in a modular way so there's a number of developments in that space i'm all ears if any people listening to this have got other ways of doing it and are aware of any technology in that space because we are spinning up other innovation work that's that's looking at that so you know how how do we handle hydrogen how do we um, control it these are all things that are on my innovation agenda and bear in mind we we have innovation funds from Ofgem, our regulator, that we have to facilitate innovation projects going forward. So uh, I, hence, I'm all ears. If, if people have got good ideas on the back of this, I would encourage them to, to get in touch, please. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Just, just kind of shifting the conversation a little bit. You, you mentioned Ofgem and the innovation funding. You know, the, well, to ask a blunt question, uh, this all sounds really expensive. Who's going to pay for it? Ultimately... We as consumers have got to pay, haven't we? Because, you know, ultimately there's nobody else that will pay for net zero. There's no secret sovereign wealth fund that is going to rock up and pay for net zero, so it's all covered. What we've got to do is ensure that it's a fair transition, that certain groups or certain people or certain families are not disproportionately nailed with, with the costs. So what government have got to do is, is work out how do you facilitate that transition and do so fairly. It can't be that the rich get richer out of this and you leave the poor behind. So from that point of view, we've got to work out, does it work best through the customer bill? Does it work out best through a level of general taxation? Is it a combination of the two that's needed? And we don't have all those answers. And you'll see that government are consulting on many of these aspects at the moment. 
as to what is the right sort of framework that needs to sit behind hydrogen production, behind the transmission, the use. And you've got to do that then in the context of everything that's needed for electrification and, and balance everything out. So it's, it's not an easy task by any stretch, but the, the simple answer is at the end of the day, we've got to pay for it somehow, or we pass the cost down to our kids. And I don't think that's particularly fair. We've, we've got to figure out a way that is, is fair. And if we do it you know, with our eyes open and we keep on innovating, I think we can get that cost down as we go. You know, I, I think there's, there's lots of opportunity to to work through this, it will create investment opportunities for organizations that will benefit from it. That's going to lower the cost again. So yeah, one way or another, we've, we've got to pay for it, but there will be benefits along the way as well for organizations to help pay for it. Public and private, I guess, is the answer. So, so for a company like National Grid, Obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're a regulated infrastructure company. How does the way you're regulated, how do you think that might change as, you know, for, for National Grid Gas as they need to operate existing gas assets under a particular regulatory approach? Does that regulatory approach need to change for hydrogen considering the investment you need, the trials you need, you know, the way that you then pay for that? Does that change? So let's, let's start in the way we've got our funding at the moment. Ofgem have been terrific moving into Rio2. They've taken the net zero focus. They've given us innovation funding to focus on the, the hydrogen projects. They've created the Strategic Innovation Fund, which is a £450 million fund focused towards ident clearly identified challenges, but the whole net zero agenda is the, the core essence of that. They've also given us a batch of funding to facilitate net zero projects. And they've created two net zero reopeners, one for smaller projects, one for bit, much bigger construction-oriented projects. So the hooks are in place for us to work with the regulator in the current form. And that's in this five-year period. All of that is, is in place. So you know they, they, they've very much listened as to what the need is. Going forward into as we head towards Rio 3 the chances are there's going to be more needed in the way of construction and that's where there will be more risk on us as we move toward much, spending much larger amounts of money as we start to to look at asset conversion some new build and so on so the question there is does the, the higher risk part of our work command a, a higher level of risk return reward equation um, is it sitting in the same regulatory environment or do they get separated? We don't know any of the answers to this at the moment. This is an area that uh, will have to be consulted on and um, we'll, we'll see where that goes in due course. But I, I would think there is, there is good reason for having it where there is a different risk-reward equation that is applied to those newer assets as we make, make that transition. Okay, that, that's that's. Really interesting. Just well, one thing you mentioned um, earlier on, sorry to keep jumping around, one thing you mentioned earlier on was how National Grid are kind of leading the way in terms of European development of, of transmission operates. Obviously, we, we've seen the hydrogen backbone vision uh, that all the TSOs were involved, or most of the TSOs were involved in. And a, a bit off topic, but has Brexit changed the way that you cooperate with some of the European, continental European TSOs? That's a great question. And the first meeting we had after Brexit, 
was was really interesting because I kind of came to the meeting almost a little bit sheepish, not knowing how we were going to be received. And I can't remember who it was on the other side. Um, but the, the, the gist of the statement was, you might no longer be in Europe, but you're connected to us with a pipe and the energy is still flowing through that pipe. So let's just get on with what we've got to do. And I thought that was a lovely way of just settling the scene. You know, we are still an integrated um, energy user in Europe um, and we've got a role to play. Now, certain things coming out of the European Union will obviously have to change because we can't sit on certain committees because things don't get worked up in that sense. But we've still got very live, active connections with our TSO colleagues in Europe. One group that we are a co-founder of is the H2GAR group. H2GAR is a horrible acronym, but it stands for Hydrogen Gas Asset Readiness. And that is seven TSOs of which there is, I'm going to try and remember them all now, SNAM, Fluxis, GRT Gas, Energas, Open Grid Europe, ourselves, and there's one other I've just forgotten. In my head, I can't think who it is. It will come back to me in a minute. Gajini. Uh, um, those are the seven. So we've got six working groups and a steer co that sits above all of that. We've got people working together all the time. The, the Brexit changeover didn't impact one little bit. We we carry on as we were. And I, I hadn't heard of that group. So is it one that will be public facing or is it more kind of internal within the TSOs? That's a great question because we've been very much internal facing. There's I often say there's there's not a, not a consultant inside in that group. <laughs> Because it is just internal people working together. We we have had a conversation around how do we make that more externally focused. Um, we were talking about it just recently. I think you'll start to see us doing a few more publications and you'll start to see us probably doing some external webinars where we will tell people what we're doing and what we found and what the next challenges are. Because we've, we've got to a level of maturity that we've now got others wanting to join us. And the, the challenge is, if you're small and nimble, as small and nimble as seven TSOs working together can be, we've been very successful. The moment that group starts to balloon, it gets more and more challenging to, to move at speed. So we're, we're trying to retain the, the essence of being quick movers, but then try and open up so that we benefit from others as well. So we're going through that I'm a little bit of growing pains in that sense at the moment. We're trying to carry on doing what we're doing, but but then sort of reach out as well. So watch this space, but you may hear about it a bit more. Just kind of talking then about that European cooperation. Um, we're expecting this year to see, you know, some proposals come out of the Commission about reform of the gas markets in order to try and help facilitate the integration of hydrogen. Are you still kind of involved in those debates? Because obviously, you know, we're, we, we are now separate, but we're still integrated, as you said. So anything that happens, continental Europe by the Commission will affect us. Probably not as integrated into them as we were, but we are still monitoring. So the, the Net Zero Policy Manager reports into myself. He'll be keeping an eye on all the gas package coming out of Europe and what that means. Um, because clearly we, we are on the receiving end of whatever comes through the interconnectors. And maybe in the future, they'll be on the receiving end of what we send down the interconnectors. So, because I think things will change as we go forward, we've got to make sure that we are tied into the, the overall hydrogen transition as they go and we go. 
And what we, we can't forget in all of this is we, we think of Europe as being those guys across the channel. We've also got colleagues across the Irish Sea yeah. who receive the majority of their gas from us. So even though we do not sit in Europe, we, we connect Europe back together with the pipe work. So our Irish colleagues are very much interconnected with us through the, the, the interconnectors that run out of Moffat in Scotland. We are having regular conversations with them as well to make sure that we're aligned in what we're doing. And, and with those interconnectors, I've done a lot of work in the gas markets in Ireland over the, over the years. So it's always a, and it was partly why I was leading you to ask you about Ireland, actually. About, is, are there any issues with the interconnectors obviously you know they've got a couple of big compressors that are feeding those interconnectors if you know you you went up to a blend of 20 percent are they okay with that on their side i guess their pipeline network is relatively new but any issues with the subsea um pipelines carrying hydrogen i mean those aren't our pipelines so i can't really comment on the on those i i've not heard of any any concerns at this point but yeah clearly they're not our assets so it'd be inappropriate for me to really comment on those but you're right the main part of the irish network is a lot newer um, I was actually involved in some of the early modelling for uh, Port Cash back in the day, doing some of that. So, yeah, I know how recent their assets are in comparison to our own. Okay. Hydrogen wholesale market, just to change the change the subject again, how, how far do you think we are away from a hydrogen wholesale market? And what do you think we need to try and get there? That's an interesting one. And in the stakeholder engagement we've actually done for Project Union, one of the key things that has come out the market will only really start when you start connecting the production centers. So if you've just got point solutions where you've got production feeding industry next door, you don't really have a market. Once you've got pipelines opened up, which link multiple producers with multiple potential users, that's your, your, your opening really. It's not that viable to be tankering hydrogen around to create that sort of artificial market because the particularly industry uses an awful lot by volume of, of gas. So it's really when that pipe work opens up. So one of the key things is that it's, you, you'll only see a liquid market really opening up once the backbone opens up and you start creating more linkages into that. So from a date's point of view, we want to start building Project Union towards the back end of this decade from 26 onwards with a view to completing it in the early 2030s so i appreciate that's a very big window but we are talking very big infrastructure projects here and we're just going through the planning phases at the moment so back end of the 20s early 30s would be my sort of initial estimate really for that sort of thing and, and do you think we can we can copy and paste the gas market rules for hydrogen market I think mean, we can probably learn a lot. There may be some differences. I'm, I'm not an expert on the on the gas market from that point of view, so I'd have to leave that to my colleagues that, that know more as to what needs to be changed as we go, if anything. Okay, so Tony, we, we've talked a bit about the industrial clusters being developed in the UK, but one of the other areas that we see being talked about a lot for hydrogen is its use in the power sector, whether that's for providing storage, flexibility of electrolyzers to the grid, etc. What, what's your view from National Grid's perspective on the use of hydrogen in the, in the wider power sector? I think what you've got to think about here is that there's a view that electrification will play a much bigger role in the future and that the wind will predominantly provide and the sun will provide our, our energy going forward. 
That's absolutely fine until the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. We, we've had a couple of examples this year where I think it was April, we had 19 days of low wind and nine days of no wind. And then I think it's most of August was a very low wind month, um, becomes quite a challenge. And this, this is where hydrogen is a perfect bedfellow to electrification in that sense, because we can actually store the molecule. So where we've got excess wind, we can utilize that to produce hydrogen. We can then put that into storage. Now, whether that is the shortest term storage or whether it's the longer term storage, we, we know that Centrica are looking at reopening rough at the moment. We could have some really big strategic stores available for us. That means we've then got something we can bring back when the sun isn't uh, shining, the, the wind's not blowing, and we can dispatch the, the electricity that we need and keep the lights on. So from that point of view, I think it's got a role. Is it, I mean, at some days you can get 40, 50% gas-fired generation in the country. I think, you know, some of that could carry on, but it's as, as we build out more and more wind, hopefully we, we are using that sort of less frequency and it's there as more of a backup when, it, when it's really needed. So I think, I think that's probably the, the key approach is just getting that right balance between the two. And, and making sure that uh, we, we can actually keep the lights on when, when that's required. And those could be bigger units or they could be smaller units that are more distributed as well from small scale production. Okay. And what about kind of flexibility services? You know, we've got some colleagues that are doing a lot of work looking at flexibility in general and how power grids access that flexibility in the future. And, you know, it could be through having a mass EV charging network with smart charging so you can use the EVs as a battery. Uh, but also something we've talked about a little bit is about electrolyzers with a very fast response time offering, you know, grid services back to the ESO. Is that something you think there's there's going to be good value in? Uh, absolutely. I mean, electrolyzers will use an awful lot of electricity when you want them to and convert that to molecules. Equally, if you need that energy elsewhere, being able to shut them off and, and use that energy elsewhere you know, that would be fantastic to be able to do that. And it gives you that increased flexibility. It also means that you're not constraining electricity production. You know, the worst thing is seeing turbines turned off and um, solar farms turned off because we don't need or can't use the electricity at the time. So I, I think, yeah, bringing together a market that is more flexible is the key and avoiding those constraints, I think would be fantastic. And, you know, that's ultimately a vision of the future, isn't it? If we can uh, get one working with the other and interacting and it become effectively one power network. So we are talking energy in the entirety, whether we're talking electrons or molecules, it shouldn't matter. At the moment, we, we are two separate networks quite clearly and we need to try and bring that together if we can. In terms of what we need to do in the next 12 months then, Tony, what are the key things we need to get on with? Getting on with it, I think, is the key thing. We've got, I think, still some ongoing challenge in the sense of policy direction, regulation, and that, I'll call it the ticket to trade in the sense of being able to get on with it. So we, we still need government to keep pushing forward the whole policy agenda in the sense of hydrogen's happening, this is needed. So we, we talked earlier about Project Union, you know, getting to some of the specifics of the key strategic projects that are needed to deliver net zero, you know, so 
Project Union is key. We believe in that. We still need government to put the backing into that so that then our regulator can get the funding in place for us to move forward. So that's really high on my agenda over the next few months in this next year in order to facilitate that tripartite sort of conversation so that we can move forward because we've got to be doing the the pre-feed and the feed work over the next few years because you can't, what I call, kick the can down the road and just make a decision in five years' time or ten years' time because you hit a point of being too late. If we want to actually transition assets, we've got to do that in a phased and controlled manner. We can't just kick the can down the road and then in 15, 20 years' time say, now let's turn to hydrogen in the network because we just won't be able to do it that quickly. You've got to be able to take a take methane out of an asset, repurpose it, bring it back up in hydrogen service, replumb people, big engineering term there, replumb people onto hydrogen and get us moving forward. And that, you know, that's going to take time to do. So, you know, we, we've got to get the decisions in place, we've got to get the finance in place, and then we can get on with being engineers and do the engineering bit of it. Consultants, you'll know how long it, some of these projects will take. You know, we've got to, we've got to have that time to actually deliver as well. So I, I, th- I think it's about, as I used the term earlier, getting the no regrets decisions made now and recognising we know where we're going, i.e. net zero, and then there will be some in-flight movement al- along the way because innovation will come along. There'll be different ways of approaching things. The market will determine how much hydrogen, how much electricity, different projects will develop. So recognizing that change will come along the way, but as long as we know the general direction we're going, we can then keep on that trajectory and adapt and adopt as we go. Because if we try and sit down now and develop the perfect solution, I can guarantee in 20 years' time that will not be a perfect solution. You know, we've got to evolve as we go. So work out what we can make a decision on now, which is no regrets, and then stepping stone at a time work our way to 2050 and adapt the best that we can along the way. So lots to do. It's going to keep me entertained. I can keep on innovating, I think, all the way to 2050. So if we go back to what I said at the head of the call, you know, that's uh, that's going to keep me happy going forward. Yeah, lots to do, as you say, and in the immediate future and, and carrying on for some years. Sounds like there's quite some challenges to overcome. And I've really enjoyed Tony, our conversation today. I've learned quite a few things as we've as we've talked. It's been really very interesting, fascinating discussion. And I'd like to thank uh, thank also John as well. But first of all, Tony, thanks very much for uh, for joining us. My pleasure. Nice to see you. And thank you again, John, for steering us through. My pleasure as always. Thanks very much for listening, and please subscribe for future episodes of Fueling the Transition. 